wonderful to be together with you guys today. You can uh, open your Bibles up today to the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be in chapter 15. And we're right in the heart of the Gospel as we enter into Mark chapter 15 and 16. And as we spend these final few weeks uh, looking at both the death and the resurrection of Jesus, uh, we know that the Bible has many things that pertain to life and to godliness, but none of the teachings that we receive from the Bible are really going to have any significant impact in our lives without the message and the good news that Jesus died on a cross for our sins and was raised from the dead to give us a living hope. So that's where we are. We talk about the cross every Sunday. We always want to point to Jesus and him crucified, but it's, it's not many Sundays where you're actually reading directly out of the text of the testimony of Jesus Christ crucified. And that's where we are today as we examine the words of Mark chapter 15 from verse 16 to 32. And and we're going to look at the physical sufferings of Jesus today. Next week, we're going to look at the spiritual component, the the spiritual sufferings that Jesus endured on the cross as we make our way toward that triumphant victory of him bursting forth from the grave by the power of the Holy Spirit and uh, this, this great gospel message we have. Amen. It's so good. So with your Bibles in Mark chapter 15, we're going to start off in verse 16, and then we're going to pray again for God to do his work in us. So starting at verse 16, it says, And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we honor you today for what you did for us upon the cross. Lord, thank you that your cross is sufficient. And Lord, I pray, God, you would help me, Lord, to speak directly from your word by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, that we would all see and believe that, Jesus, you are the King. You are the Savior of the world, and you accomplished that salvation by what you did on the cross. Oh, Holy Spirit, we ask that you'd be in our midst. Lord, convince us, compel us of the truth of Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen. Amen. So listen, just as we get into this, I am very aware that as we talk about the cross, we're talking about some hard things. And the way that Jesus was treated in his betrayal, in his trial, and in his death can really put a pit in your stomach, right? Because what happens, you know, as we come into this, where we're coming into a section with, where if you think about it, there could be an editor's note at the top of Mark chapter 15 that says, warning, graphic content. You see that sometimes we go through, warning, graphic content. There's this part of you that wants to see what that content is, and, and the Bible does not hold back from the graphic content of what Jesus did for us at the cross. But I know that when we see things like this, we can feel a certain way when we see, right, bad things happening to good people. 
when we see tragic things happening to good people, there's something within us that aches, that grieves, maybe even makes you feel angry. Because we all know that there's just something wrong about suffering and death. And, and the other side of it is that when we see judgment come upon the wicked and on the guilty, there's this innate feeling that we have within ourselves that justice is being rightfully served. And we usually think in these terms of what a person deserves and doesn't deserve. And the Bible begins by showing us God's moral law. As you go through the Old Testament, you find that its purpose was to reveal what is right and what is wrong, to show us what is good and to show us what is bad. However, what the law ended up doing for us is it showed us that there is none who is truly good or right. There is no one who is innocent and good. We understand that we have all missed the mark of being good and right, and therefore we deserve suffering in death, in judgment. But Jesus, but Jesus, who is the only true good and innocent one, came with grace to put an end to the law. And he died to put an end to the law so that we could now receive what we did not deserve, which is forgiveness in life. And the reason why Jesus dying on the cross is so scandalous, might I even say the, the cross is offensive, is because it goes against this common thinking that we all have. What's that thinking? Which is that a person should receive what they deserve. Am I the only one who thinks that way? No. We think in these terms, yet what grace does is it removes the word deserve from the vocabulary of the Christian. And that's the gospel right out the gate of this sermon, that if we were to get what we deserve, it would be death and judgment. And yet Jesus, by the gift of his grace, has given us life and freedom, which none of us deserve. And the backwardsness of it all is that this awful treatment of Jesus that we're going to see today, in no way did he deserve it. But he, he went through it to give us something good, which is salvation. Now, we read in the story about this cross that Jesus hung upon, and it's supposed to make you feel all the feelings. <laughs> it's going to make you sad. might make you feel kind of sick might put that pit in your stomach, might even make you feel angry. But God turns all of those feelings into joy when we come to understand that God's grace in his incredible love for us is best demonstrated at the cross. There's no greater way for God to tell you how much he loves you than by what Jesus did at the cross and how he suffered on your behalf. So where, where we ended last week, which was Mark chapter 15, verse 15, we saw that Jesus was sentenced to death and he was scourged. Now, the Romans would use an instrument for scourging called a cat of nine tails. It was a whip that had multiple strands of leather where into the leather were woven sharp objects throughout so that when it struck the back of the victim, it would mutilate their flesh. 
And this happened to Jesus. He was scourged. And because Jesus was a human, his body was weakened by the pain and he began to lose blood. Then after being scourged, we see what happened to Jesus next in verse 16. It says, and the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. Jesus, we know, has been handed over from one group to another. He was arrested in the garden. He was abandoned by his disciples. He was delivered over to the religious leaders, and then they handed him to the civil leaders, and each one of them had their hands in killing the giver of life. And Pilate, who was this governor, announced the judgment upon Jesus. He spoke the words to the cross, and the Roman soldiers carried Jesus off to perform the sentencing. And they took him from the praetorium, which was the steps at Pilate's headquarters. This was where we saw the crowd as they chanted, crucify him, crucify him. And they took him from those steps into the palace, which was the governor's headquarters. Now inside the palace, we see that the soldiers call together the whole battalion. And a Roman battalion was anywhere up to 600 soldiers. And so you now have to picture in your mind what this battalion of soldiers will do to Jesus. And as I said, having these images in your mind are not easy to have. These are hard things that we're going to look at. But these were real events that took place in the real life of Jesus in the final hours of his life. And what they will do to him is not something that was even required by Roman law. What they began to do to him at this point was something that was simply to humiliate him and to add insult to injury. And so in verse 17, we read what the soldiers, this battalion, does to Jesus. It says, And they clothed him in a purple cloak. They stripped Jesus of his own clothing, and they put on him a piece of purple clothing. And... Purple, during this time and culture, was a sign of royalty. Uh, Normal clothes were just kind of boring colors. But purple was, uh, you had to have these expensive dyes in order to make clothing of that color. And therefore, purple was worn by people of high class and, and of wealth. And so it was a sign of royalty. And this was the first piece of clothing. Wherever they got this purple rag, they put it on Jesus as they facetiously begin to dress him up so that they can mock him as a pretend king. And then it says they twisted together a crown of thorns and they put it on him. This cruel and rude game of dress-up continues as they gather together these thorn branches. And they make it into something of a circle, something that resembles a crown. Because, you know, kings wear crowns. And if Jesus is the king of the Jews, then, well, we should dress him up with a crown. And so they take these thorns and they press it into the scalp of Jesus and blood begins to stream down his face and into his eyes. And all the while, Jesus is remaining silent. But he was looking with eyes of love through the blood that was falling down his face and was even loving this battalion that mocked him. And then in verse 18, we read that they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. 
He's all dressed up in his purple cloak. He's got the crown of thorns now on his head, and the battalion is laughing. And the jokes are flying around the room. And the one that really got a good laugh among them was that they would salute Jesus. Because the battalion was used to saluting. They would go and they would salute Caesar and say, Hail Caesar! Ave Caesar! But here they have this Jewish man, this rejected leader of the people that they just absolutely despise. And they cynically call him the king of the Jews. And then in verse 19, it says they were striking his head with a reed. And when we look in Matthew's gospel, in, in his account of this, we see that the soldiers gave Jesus a stick or a reed to hold, as if it was a king's scepter. You know, it was just another piece to the costume, another way that they could mock him as if he was a pretend king. And then they would take that reed from Jesus, that stick, and they would hit him in the head with it. And each strike of the reed would make contact with the thorns, which would press it deeper into his scalp and cause more pain and more bleeding. As the mocking continued, we read that the soldiers were spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. You know this word for spitting it has the, the verb tense that means to keep on spitting. Meaning that Jesus could have been spat upon upwards to 600 times by 600 different men. And for those of us who bow the knee to Jesus, we cringe to think about how these men would come one by one, kneeling down before him, seeking to add shame and pretending to honor him. And then verse 20, it says, And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him and led him out to crucify him. Do you know what it's saying there when it says, and when they had mocked him? It, it's, what it's saying is that once they had been done with this whole game of dress-up, once they'd had their fun and their fill of laughter, they eventually just got bored with it. You know, there wasn't that the soldiers came to their senses and thought, hey, we should probably stop. You know, this whole thing's getting kind of out of hand. They're, looking, they're not looking at Jesus thinking, here's this kind and peaceful and innocent man. Why would we treat him with such violence? No, the idea is just that they got over it, that the funniness of it just wore off for them. And so they took the costume off of Jesus, they passed back his clothes to him, and they said, all right, let's go. Take up your cross, we're leaving. You know, as I sat here for a while thinking about this terrible judgment and treatment of Jesus, which again, the Bible doesn't spare any details in, so I didn't spare any details for us today. I'm looking out upon you guys. I, I see your faces. <laughs> I can see your faces. I can, I can see because we have a way as human beings of showing what's in our soul upon our faces. And when we talk about Jesus in this way and we see of his harsh treatment, it, it makes us feel all these feelings. Now, as I started to think about that more this week, I, 
I was wondering that if I was in this battalion, if I was there, would I have participated in these cruel acts? As I was thinking about that, I wondered if Jesus had only been with one individual soldier, would any of this have even happened? And perhaps it would have, but, but what happened was there was a battalion of soldiers, 600 men, who were all feeding off of each other and getting entertainment from being cruel together. And the simple point is that it can be easy for us to sin as a group, especially if everyone's doing it. You know, we sin as individuals. At least I hope you know that. I hope that if you're here today, you understand the reality that you are a sinner and that you have fallen short of the glory of God, that you've not done good. You are not perfect. We sin as individuals, but we also sin in groups. We, we join together with people to participate in a common activity. You know, we, we join in the drunkenness. We join in the coarse jesting. We join in the gossip and the slander. Why? Because everyone else is doing it. And, and it's become acceptable to the group. And, and groups can make us think that something is not sinful because there's this sort of silent agreement that can happen in groups. And I think you'll know what I'm talking about, where, where in groups you can kind of just say, you know, if you don't see my sin, I won't see your sin. And if we are both doing it together, then there's no one to judge us, right? And the problem is, is that just because your sin is accepted by a group and everyone's doing it, doesn't mean that it's acceptable and certainly does not mean that Jesus did not have to pay for it at the cross. And sometimes what it takes is it takes us stepping back from the group stepping out of the mob mentality and seeing that our sin is not acceptable even if everyone else is doing it. And so the soldiers take Jesus and they leave the governor's headquarters. They, they make their way to this hill just outside the city where they would crucify criminals. And where they're going to take Jesus, we see that in verse 22. It says, And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. Now the name of this hill in Latin is the name Calvary. Ring a bell? <laughs> you know, it's the name that we bear as a church. And, you know, sometimes I, I think about our name, Calvary Chapel, Palace Verdes. Um, and, and I think sometimes I overlook the significance of being called Calvary. I guess you could say that we, if we wanted to, we could call ourselves Golgotha Chapel or even Skull Chapel. That sounds kind of tough, right? <laughs> but Calvary, Calvary Chapel links us to this network, this family of churches that began in the 1960s in Southern California. Um, there was a revival that took place in the 1960s known as the Jesus People Movement. Maybe some of you lived through that time. And one church that was instrumental in seeing people come to Jesus by the masses was a church called Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa, which was led by a pastor named Chuck Smith. Uh, Chuck Smith went to be with the Lord um, some years ago, and actually his wife, Kay Smith, went to be with Jesus on Friday. Yeah. 
and she was 95 or 94 years old, and, and what's so amazing is to think that Chuck and Kay are now reunited together with Jesus. I'm so thankful for the Calvary Chapel movement and, and the church that I got saved in in Santa Barbara and the church that I now get to um, lovingly pastor here in Palos Verdes, but there are 1,600 Calvary chapels worldwide. Um, there's this great heritage that we have that links us um, together, which is our common love for the Word of God and the Spirit of God and the declaration of the gospel. But, you know, Calvary goes much further back than the 1960s. It was this place, this hill just outside of Jerusalem called Calvary or Golgotha, which means place of the skull. This was a place where Jesus would be crucified. And I like that we bear this name, Calvary, because what it does is it identifies us, not just with the network or family of churches, but it identifies us with the death of Jesus. And, and because I want to always be known as a church that proclaims Jesus and him crucified. So when you see that name, Calvary, think of Jesus and what he did for you at the cross. But let's look just one verse back at verse 21 where Mark gives us some detail as to how Jesus was able to make it up this hill called Golgotha. It says they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And as you guys know, we've been talking about this. It was the week of Passover and there were families that were flooding in from all over into the city of Jerusalem. The crowds were thick. It was, it was high time for the Romans to be putting people on crosses because what crosses did was it kept this fear and this shock in the midst of the people in the crowds. It reminded the people that if they even thought of rebelling against the Romans during this week, they would be dealt with harshly. And so Jesus is now carrying this wooden crossbeam, and he's carrying it upon his scourged back, and he's making uh, his way through this crowd, the, through these streets, as everyone is looking in on Jesus. Jesus, at some point along the way to the hill where he would be crucified, was really struggling. He's having a really hard time carrying this crossbeam section. Um, it was maybe up to 70 or 90 pounds upon the scourged back of Jesus. And he was sort of succumbing under the weight of it. And the Romans wanted to crucify Jesus. You know, this was free advertisement for them. And, and they saw Jesus. He was moving a little bit too slowly, and they didn't want Jesus to die on the road. They wanted to make sure that he would die on the cross. And so what did they do? says that they compelled a passerby to carry the cross for Jesus. And, you know, no Roman soldier was going to do it. So what do they do? They need to find somebody. And so with fear and intimidation, they go and they try to compel somebody to carry the cross for Jesus. And out of this thick crowd, they see a man, and his name is Simon. And perhaps by his appearance, you could tell that he was not from Jerusalem, but that he was coming from the country, which it says that he was. And that they didn't want to make some Jewish man from Jerusalem to carry the cross for Jesus, because that would just stir up conflict, and they did not want that. They tried to find a visitor, somebody who could carry the cross for Jesus. Isn't it wonderful that we know the man's name? 
You know, forever in the record of the death of Jesus, there will be this name, Simon of Cyrene, the man who carried Jesus' cross. Look forward to meeting that man in heaven. But Simon, as we learn, he was from northern Africa, from Cyrene, and it tells us that he had two sons. Now, isn't that an interesting detail, that it tells us that he had two sons named Alexander and Rufus? Now, the reason that this might be, and it's widely agreed upon, that Simon of Cyrene, this man who carried Jesus' cross, eventually became a follower of Jesus. You have to think about it. After he was compelled by the Romans, he went on his way into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And three days later, with all the incredible things that happened there, when the veil was torn and and the news was ringing out that Jesus had been risen from the dead, he would have heard maybe a news report that said, that man, Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified on Friday, has now been raised on Sunday. Isn't that amazing? And Simon would have been, what did you say that man's name was? Jesus of Nazareth. I know that man. I carried that man's cross. He's risen from the dead? You know, I don't know that during that exchange as Simon carried the cross for Jesus, whether Jesus would have made some sort of eye contact with him or maybe said something to him. Or maybe, you know, Simon just saw something unique about Jesus. But what we know is that, that Simon, at least we can be pretty convinced of it, that he did come to know Jesus. And the reason for this is because his son's names are mentioned, Alexander and Rufus. And the names are mentioned because as Mark was writing his gospel, it would have been understood that those who would have read the gospel would have known these two men, Alexander and Rufus, to be leaders in the church. And even in the, in the New Testament epistles, we see those names come up as well. And isn't it wonderful, just a little encouragement here, that when one person, perhaps a father of a family, comes to know Jesus, how it can spread throughout a whole family. When salvation comes to a home, how, how it can spread to an entire family. Yeah, Simon was compelled to carry Jesus' cross, and he would have had such a unique perspective of the cost and the call of discipleship, which is to take up your cross and follow Jesus. And as Simon followed him, his family saw it, and they believed it. You know, I always like to encourage parents who, whose children are not walking with the Lord. And I'll tell you, I've said this before, Your children are powerless against a praying parent. And if you're here today, and you are a son or a daughter, perhaps you're with your parents today, and your parents know Jesus, and they love Jesus, and they've tried to raise you in the admonition of the Lord for you to know Jesus, yet you have rejected Jesus, oh, friend, I pray you would know Jesus. Your parents haven't always gotten it perfect or right. But Jesus is your brother, and he points you to a heavenly father. And if you've yet to surrender to Jesus today, and you are a young person, I pray that today you would. It's wonderful to see how God's salvation goes forth. We see then in verse 
22, that Jesus was brought to a hill called Golgotha. You know, our text started out saying that he was led to the cross. Now it's saying that he was brought to the cross, which means that his strength has diminished significantly in this procession, but now he's at the place of the skull. Now he's ready to be lifted up on the cross, and we read verse 23, and they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. You know, as he's now on the top of this hill, the soldiers are stationed there at the cross, and they have sort of a bucket of wine that has been mixed with myrrh. It was something of a drug that would help ease the pain of crucifixion. You know, the cross, crucifixion, was something of excruciating pain. That word excruciating comes from the Latin word of the cross. So when you talk about having excruciating pain, we're talking about the pain that Jesus felt when he died for you. And so what the Romans did as some sort of nice gesture was they would have this anesthetic drink for the victim or the criminal to drink. But Jesus, after being offered this anesthetic drink, did not take it. Jesus was going to endure the cross and he wasn't going to he wasn't going to receive anything that was going to dull or ease the pain that he would feel. Jesus was going to endure the cross and he wasn't going to take any help or comfort from a drug. He refused this anesthetic drink not because Jesus enjoyed the feeling of pain, but because he wanted to have all of his senses and all of his faculties at work as he bore the sins of the world. He didn't want anything to hinder the work that he had been called to do. And Jesus chose not to take anything that would relieve this suffering on the cross. He chose to to bear the full weight of it in his own body and to feel everything of it. My father-in-law gave me this point this week. Can I tell you how this might apply to you? Is that there is no anesthetic drink that will alleviate your cost of taking up your cross to follow Jesus. Furthermore, there is no medicine that can cure you of the disease that we all have, which is sin. There is only one cure for sin, and it's the blood of Jesus. And here Jesus is. He is ready to bleed on the cross for our atonement. He is ready to feel all the physical and spiritual pain that would come with it. And we read in verse 24, And they crucified him. There it is, friends. Jesus had large nails driven through his hands and a nail driven through his feet, and he was lifted up on the cross, this place that he had determined to go so that he could die as a substitute for sinners. He was fulfilling the Father's will, and they crucified him. Verse 24 says as well, they divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. Now the dividing of his garments means this. It means that Jesus was exposed. This was a detail that that should make us realize the magnitude of the shame that Jesus experienced at the cross. But this detail also does something else, especially if you're a student of the word of God. See, this detail connects us back to a messianic prophecy that was given in the Old Testament. 
There was a psalm that was written by King David in Psalm 22, verse 16 through 18, that reads like this. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I count all my bones. They stare and glow over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. I don't know if you understand what I mean that this is a Old Testament prophecy spoken about Jesus. What what I mean by this is that this was written 1,000 years prior to Jesus' death, long before crosses were even invented by the Romans. So to have his hands and feet pierced, and to have his garments divided and have them cast lots for them is a prophetic fulfillment that took place in the death of Jesus. What prophecy is meant to do is it's meant to convince you of the proof that Jesus is who he said he is. The chance of him fulfilling one prophecy like this would be impressive enough, but there are hundreds of like this, of them like this. And you can search the scriptures because what God did is before the foundations of the earth, there was the lamb who was slain. And God determined beforehand, even even prophetically told us beforehand what Jesus the Messiah would do so that when he did it, we would believe. We would be compelled. We would be convinced. And in verse 25 to 27, we find out more of what took place with Jesus on the cross. It says, and it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, King of the Jews. And with him, they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And so it was nine in the morning when they crucified Jesus. And the inscription of the plaque that hung around the neck of the person as they made the procession to the cross would have read uh, the crimes that were committed. And and as I said, this was sort of advertisement for the Romans because the the crowds would see what is written on that plaque and they would know, if, if I do this, this is what will happen to me. And so insurrectionist, murder, and thief would have been inscribed upon the plaque of Barabbas as he would have gone to the cross. And yet Barabbas has already gone free. And Jesus has this charge against him, that red king of the Jews. And, and it's as if they didn't know what to write. It's like, what should we write upon this innocent man's plaque? Well, well, let's use this title that's been used all day to mock him. Let's use this thing that says king of the Jews and it was written in three languages in Hebrew and Latin and Greek and it was written in these multiple languages because Jesus is indeed the king not only of the Jews but every tribe nation and tongue amen and then we see that Jesus was not the only one crucified that day but that there was a man on his right and a man on his left which was also prophesied about in Isaiah and is uh is in verse 28, perhaps that's not in your Bible, but verse 28 is this prophecy about how he was crucified with criminals. Hopefully you know the story about how these men believed upon Jesus, and one of those men, I should say, believed on Jesus and joined Jesus in heaven that day. 
one of those thieves on the cross that was right next to Jesus uh, did in, indeed say, remember me, remember me in paradise. And he did. Jesus said, um, you will see me there today. You know, there's only one deathbed conversion in the Bible, and it's this thief that's on the cross. And, and I tell people, there's only one deathbed conversion in the Bible, and the reason for that is so that you wouldn't lose hope for your loved ones on their deathbed if they haven't received Jesus. But there's only one so that we wouldn't presume upon it. This man did come to Jesus, but listen, I'll tell you, friends, today is the day of salvation. You're not supposed to wait till your final breath, your last hour to confess Christ, because you don't know when your last breath and your final hour is. And so today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to believe, because the moment you believe is the moment that Jesus says, you will see me in heaven. And let's read the last several verses of our text this morning in verse 29 to 32. It says, And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from that cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from that cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. So the mocking and the reviling continued as Jesus hung upon the cross. And, and guys, we know it's painful for us to read some of the things that were said because Jesus didn't deserve any of this treatment. And if you love Jesus and, and you've made him the king of your life, you know that Jesus did have his temple destroyed and raise it up in three days. That as they mocked him, these people mocked him because they had their focus in the physical realm, thinking that when Jesus talked about the temple being destroyed and it being raised up in three days, they thought they were talking about the temple of Herod, but he's talking about his own body. The body of the temple that Jesus had that was raised up three days later. And those who passed by derided him. People walked right on past the cross. And isn't it true that people pass right on by the cross of Jesus today and deride him? Not realizing who it is that actually hung there and what he actually accomplished. Then the religious leaders come, the chief priests and the scribes. These are the ones who are finally getting to see what they wanted to see. Out of envy, they finally got this Messiah, this Savior of the Jews, to die upon a cross. And they say to him, how are you going to save from that position, Jesus? You call yourself a Savior? Well, why don't you come down from that cross? Let the Christ, and, and that's Greek for the word Messiah in Hebrew, let the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, come down from that cross that we may see and believe. <laughs> They were seeing it right there. They were seeing what they needed to believe, which is that the Messiah did indeed come, and he was dying for our sins. So what was Jesus, the Son of God, doing on a cross? God was making him who knew no sin to be sin for us 
so that in him we would become the righteousness of God. Jesus was saving us from our mocking. Jesus was saving us from our deriding rejection. And Jesus did not save himself from the cross because he was saving us. He was saving you and he was saving me. And it wasn't nails that hung Jesus and held Jesus on the cross. It was love that held him there. Jesus could have in that moment as people mocked him and derided him, he could have called a legion of angels in that moment and just smoked them all. But what did he do? We know in John that he prayed, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And as we end here today, I'm going to reiterate that we've heard some hard things. Still seeing it on your guys' faces, by the way. Some hard things, but some good things. And we've heard the gospel today. And in many ways, the cross has been sanitized in our modern world. We wear crosses as jewelry. We see them on our church buildings. We've got two on the sides of our sanctuary here. And a lot of times... We, we think of the cross as a symbol of our redemption, which it is. It's a symbol of our redemption. There's nothing wrong with having a cross as a symbol of your redemption, but what we've studied today reminds us what our redemption cost Jesus. Jesus was mocked by many that day, and my prayer today, my exhortation to you today, is that you would not mock Jesus. You might ask, well, how have I mocked Jesus? Think about what they did when they mocked him. The Roman soldiers dressed him up and had him play a role of pretend king. They gave him a purple robe and a crown and a scepter and they they paid homage to him, but it was all just an act. They didn't actually honor Jesus as king. And friends, Jesus is not interested in playing a pretend role of king in your life. He's not interested in, in, in playing this, this act one day a week when the rest of your life you're not actually letting Jesus be king. See, we want to be the kings and the queens of our own lives, don't we? Sin makes us want to rule our own lives. We want to have that right, and we don't want Jesus interfering with it. But we make for really bad royalty, don't we? I know I do. I know that when I try to be king of my life, I make a mess of it. And I know that I need Jesus to be king. And so instead of mocking Jesus and giving him just some laughable role in my life, I give him all of myself. I fully surrender all all that I am to King Jesus. And I live to obey him at his word. I live to be compelled by what Jesus has done for me. And as we end here this morning, I want to ask you, how have you seen Jesus today as we've made our journey now through this cross, uh, the story of the cross of Jesus? I wonder which passerby you are like in the story that we've read today. There was one passerby who walked by the cross and derided Jesus. He wagged his head at Jesus and said, so much for your words being true. You know, was looking at Jesus and completely missing what Jesus was doing there. Saying, oh, you said you were going to 
fix the temple when he was talking about his own life. Listen, today I, I don't think you can rightfully pass through this Sunday without coming to terms with the fact that Jesus is who he said he is, that he's the king of kings, and that he fulfilled prophecy perfectly so that you would see and you would believe. See, you can't just pass by Jesus and not bow the knee to him to actually make him your real king. The other passerby was Simon of Cyrene. He's a wonderful picture of what every person passing through this world ought to do. You know, Jesus gave this call of discipleship. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. I remember when Jesus said those words earlier in Mark that there was another Simon who was like, oh yeah, 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 I'll, I'll, I'll take up my cross, I'll, follow, I'll die with you, Jesus. Where's that Simon? We know he'll be restored, but there was another Simon that was raised up, one who actually carried the cross of Jesus, Simon of Cyrene. He, 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 he came from a far country, and he came to see Jesus. He turned from his sins. He came to look upon Jesus, realizing that this man was unique, realizing that, that this man did not deserve to carry the cross, and yet he received the free gift of grace through Jesus, something that he did not deserve. And so today as we end, I ask you the question, is Jesus your king? We have a crucified king, a crucified savior to look upon. And today, would you lay aside every weight, every sin that holds you down? Would you begin a life of faith if you haven't yet? If you are in the race of faith, would you look again on Jesus? Would you fix your eyes on him who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God? Jesus is right now in heaven praying for us that we would see him and we would honor him as the king of kings. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this morning. Thank you for what you did at the cross. God, we trust, Lord, that as your word has been spoken, Lord, that you can do what only you can do. Lord, that you would come, Lord, and that if there is anyone here who is yet to say, Jesus, be my king, God, you'd come and meet them in this place. Lord, give them the grace to surrender themselves to you, to turn from their sin and look to Jesus and receive the gift of salvation. For those of us who know you, Jesus, and call you our king, Lord, we repent of any ways in our lives that we've just been giving you some laughable role, some pretend role. We want to today say, Jesus, have all of it, all of me. The errors that I've been holding back and trying to live on my own, we give it to you. And we say, Jesus, would you reign? Would you rule in my life? Thank you, Jesus, for what you did at the cross. We can't thank you enough. There's no words to put together that would tell us how much we love you and appreciate you. We thank you for this, this act of love, Lord, that that never has been seen in the world and never will be seen again. You dying on the cross for us, the greatest demonstration of love that we will ever know. We thank you in Jesus' name we pray, amen.